Good morning, all. Good morning to your friends who are here and some of our friends online. Say hi to our online friends. Hi, online friends who are joining us. That's if the online is working. I bet it is. So good. Thank you, uh, tech team in the back, for always holding us up. Uh, I'm always super stoked to be here on Sunday. I'm stoked that you're here uh, together with me, so thanks for joining us. It's been an Ephesians type of uh, day today, I think, uh, as we continue in our series uh, in Ephesians. I hope that you guys have been blessed by going through a book verse by verse uh, together here on Sunday. I wanted to encourage you to do something, to maybe make Ephesians, so we have about four more weeks of Ephesians, maybe make Ephesians part of your devotional, where you're just reading the book over and over. There's only five chapters in it, and so you just read it over and over and over and over. Uh, so add it to maybe your devotional along with your verse of the day from the Bible app, you know, uh, which is great. And so just maybe add that for just a couple of weeks. I know it maybe will feel redundant. Oh, I just read this one. But if you read it over and over and over again, it allows God to do a work in you. It allows the, the Word of God to settle on you differently than just skipping through it and going to something new. Because sometimes we, we hear something, we, oh, that's really cool, and then uh, next day it's sort of set to the side. And so what a great opportunity uh, maybe to add this to part of your devotionals. Just read a chapter of Ephesians each day. It, it just takes, you know, a, a minute, two minutes to add that to your devotion. So for six weeks, we've seen uh, God's work. We've seen God's love. We've seen God's grace. We've seen God's adopting. We've seen God's moving. We've seen God's heart. And today, we're going to hear God say, in light of all of those things, I want you to live worthy. Live a life worthy of the calling that I give you. And he's going to list three areas that he wants us to live worthy in. The first is in our heart's attitude. The second is live worthy in your dedication to unity. And the third is live worthy in your desire to grow into spiritual maturity. So in our attitude, in our dedication to unity, and in our maturity. That's the three things that God is going to ask us to live worthy in it, the three areas that we'll see in Ephesians chapter 4 today. And so we're uh, jumping right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to get 16 of these verses. He starts out, I, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What have you been called in the last few chapters of Ephesians? What have you been called by God? God called you his son and daughter. That's your calling. God called you part of his body with Christ as the head. That's your calling. God has called you to be one church. God has called you to know that you are loved immeasurably. God has called you through grace. God has called you his own. Calling isn't a reference to vocation, rather to a new position. We hear calling and we think it's, oh, what job should I have? But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says your calling is what God calls you, who he calls you to be, who he wants you to actually become. And the idea is clear. We don't walk worthy. We don't desire to live a worthy life so that we can gain or earn God's favor, but rather because we already have God's favor. He spent the first three chapters just saying, God loves you, God's grace is on you, he's with you, he's with you, he loves you, you're part of him, there's something he's doing in you. And because of that, out of gratitude for the love of God, 
He says, now live worthy of the thing I'm calling you. I called you my son. I called you my daughter. I want you to live like it. I want you to to live in the joy that I offer, in the goodness that I offer, in the, the purity and the shamelessness that I offer. That's what I'm calling you to. It's motivated out of gratitude, not out of a desire to earn or to merit God's favor. In the first three chapters, we're setting up this principle that God loves you, God invites you, but then God changes you to live a life worthy of his calling. Our first area is in the attitude of our hearts. Check this out in Ephesians chapter 4, 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, these are all attributes that we can only exercise when we're with people. And so this is how, how does the attitude of my heart interact with those that are around me? It says you've got to be completely humble and gentle. In the ancient world, before Christianity, the idea of being humble was a bad word. The only thing that was humble was like a dirty, filthy slave. So humble was equated with trash and no good and no value, where Pride was something that was, they, they believe in themselves and they're strong. And, and that was a virtue to have. Humility was a vice in the ancient world. And then Jesus came along and he flipped it upside down and he said, I, I want you to be humble. Blessed are the humble for they shall inherit the earth. He took this thing that was, the Romans thought was disgusting, humility, where you put other people before yourself, where you, where you don't have to be on top, where you don't have to be in charge, where, where you aren't steering things your own way so that you benefit out of this, this idea of humility, being low, treating others better than yourself. It, it went from being a curse word to the Romans to being a virtue for the Christian. He says, be patient. Be patient. Patience is needed as people try to live a life worthy of the calling. Remember, he just said, live a life worthy of the calling. And to do that, you're going to need to be humble and you're going to need to be patient because you don't have it figured out yet. The, the people around you, who they're also trying to live worthy, but that doesn't mean that they've arrived yet. Living worthy is a, is a process. It's not an on or an off. It's not a yes or a no. It says, Continue to try to live out, work out your salvation. Continue to live in a manner worthy. And it's going to take patience to do that. Patience with yourself to know that you're not perfect. Then not allow the enemy to condemn you when you mess up. So you mess up and, oh, maybe you sinned big again. Maybe, maybe you fell back into your old temptations. Maybe you fell back into your destructive thoughts. Maybe you, you fell back into like self-loathing or, or, or just depression or whatever. And you say, God, I'm not, I'm not part of that anymore. And I want to reject that. And you've got to allow patience even for yourself. And you've got to be patient with other people. We look around oftentimes and they're like, oh, why is that guy such a jerk? Or why is that girl, you know, she's still catty? Or she's, you know, have all these kind of thoughts about other people. But, but how about we be patient with them as they try to live worthy of the calling rather than be judgmental over them? That's something we never want to see in the church. We never want to see people being judgmental of other people because they're trying to live worthy. Maybe they're not perfect yet, but none of us are perfect yet. So be patient with one another. Give them space to grow into living worthy. Sometimes we feel like, well, they accept Jesus, boom, now they're going to be perfect. That's not reality. That's not how, how it works. And that's not what the Bible says. It says you've got to be living worthy. Take this calling and then start to live it out. 
but as you do, do it with patience. Give space for people to grow. Bearing with one another. The only way you can bear with someone is if they needed help. The idea of bearing is to come alongside. And so the assumption is that there are people that are going to need help. You're going to need help. And God is saying, as you interact with people, be patient with them. Be gentle with them. Be humble with them. But how do Christians act quite often? Man, we are harsh and we're condemning. We're like, oh, they're so bad. Oh, they came to church, but they missed three straight weeks. And, oh, man, they don't even go to small groups. And, oh, I haven't seen them at prayer meeting. How many? We get judgmental and we get harsh and we talk to them like that. We talk to other people like that and we look down our noses. What have we become? We've then become proud of our Christianity, and then we can look down on those that aren't Christians. But isn't that the actually opposite of what humility is? Humility is that flipped upside down. We're going to look down on our nose on anyone. Where we look up at everyone in service, in humility, in gentleness, with patience, and we come alongside them, not kick them when they're down. Bearing with someone means that, that they're in distress. If someone's Winning the race, no one needs to help him. And so as we're trying to live worthy, what does living worthy look like when we bear one another? It means, hey, they're trying too, and maybe they need us to come alongside and help them, not push them down. We need this so that the inevitable wrongs that occur between people in God's family won't work against God's purpose for bringing all things together in Jesus. We need these attributes as we try to accomplish the next worthy calling, which is to stay unified. Without these, we can't have them. So we need to interact as a church in this way with one another. The second area of live worthy is to stay unified. In Ephesians 4.3, the next verse says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and He's in all. So God established unity by His Spirit and our duty is to recognize it and then to preserve it, to keep it. He says, okay, you're unified in the Spirit. Remember, long ago we're saying Jews and Gentiles became one. That was a whole like sermon section. There were, there's no sort of differences now. And now that the Spirit has unified us, he says, make every effort to stay unified. Not, not just a good effort and certainly not a half-hearted effort. He says, make every effort to stay unified, to stay connected, to keep the unity of the Spirit now, this is what we're talking about, a spiritual unity, not necessarily a structural or a denominational unity. This is not saying that all people all over the world have to go to one church and be involved in one organization. That would be a structural unity or a denominational unity, and that's not what it's saying. It's talking about a spiritual unity among all believers on earth and, and within the church community that's local. Because history teaches us that large ecclesiastical bodies... They grow more and more corrupt the longer they exist. Huge spiritual corporations are, on the whole, strongholds of tyranny, of oppression. When people get all together and it becomes a big, powerful structure, what ends up happening? Bureaucracy, power struggle, things that are against the Spirit of God. So it's okay to be unified in spirit and 
separate in structure. So I would say, go ahead and love your Assemblies of God friend at their other church, and go ahead and uh, embrace your Quaker friends, your Presbyterian folks. They don't want to hug, but they'll take maybe a fist bump, you know. Give them that. It's, it's all right to, to love even those pesky non-denominational ones. That's okay, too. And it's okay that you would start to begin to pray fervently for all of Orange County, that, that every Orange County church would be filled to the max, that there wouldn't be any seats available at Crossway this weekend. At Living Hope, there would be no seats available because there are so many people going to those church wanting to be at those church. It's okay to start to fervently pray for uh, Anthem in Santa Barbara where uh, our friend and brother Brandon uh, is worshiping, that they would be filled up. Because you know what? If God filled every single seat at every single uh, church in Orange County, there'd still be tons of non-believers that wouldn't have a seat. And so we can pray unified in the Spirit and pray for them to do great over there and great over here and great here. Keep the unity of the Spirit. We have unity because of what we share in common. Paul lists what we have in common. He says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And each of those common areas, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God, body, is greater than any potential difference. So get local here for us. I don't like the way she wears her hair. Less important than being one in God. I don't like how uh, Pastor Sam only wears these button-ups. Less important than one in the Spirit. I don't like whatever it is. Mm, He doesn't quite believe in the five points of Calvinism. Way less important than one God. So never allow the things that are not important the things that are secondary, to trump the things that are primary. All those common areas that we share alike, hope, God, faith, they're greater than any of our potential differences. He continues, he says, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So we all have grace given to us according to the measure of Jesus' gift. No one deserved or earned it, it's a spiritual gift. Now, Paul here is using grace in a slightly different way than he did earlier. But that's okay, because we use grace differently all the time, right? When I ask my daughter Kayla to say grace at dinner, uh, she doesn't explain the free gift of salvation and God's loving lean to all that are at the table, right? And then when I say to my friend, hey, Grace, I'm not saying hello and greeting God's goodness towards me and receiving that gift that he's given me. So grace is used multiple ways in the Bible and in real life. Earlier in this uh, book, Paul had talked about grace as the universal gift of God's love and lean towards people, that he navigates with you always on that basis, now and forevermore. But here he's going to use this grace a little bit more specifically, and we'll see it. Context is going to define this. We're going to see that he's using grace, that God's going to give you a special measure of grace in order to exercise a particular gift within the body so that the body can flourish and become mature. And so um, it's different than universal grace. So uh, just keep that in mind. We're going to see it in the context next. He says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. 
What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so he descended is a reference of Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, becoming a man. And then secondly, he ascends higher than our heavens in his resurrection, and he sits at the right hand of God Almighty. So the giving of specific gifts happened when Jesus ascended to heaven. That's what Paul's saying right here. When he ascended, he took captives with him, and then he gave gifts. This is the same thing that Jesus promised, though. The last uh, day before, when he was with his disciples, he said, I'm going to die, but when I, I will, I'm not going to leave you alone. When I go, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit, who will then empower you to do works even greater than I've done. And so that was Jesus' promise to his disciples. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you empty-headed. I'm going to leave you here on your own. I'm going to send someone to provide for you, to give gifts for you. And that's what he's talking about here. Here's our third idea of living worthy. It's about spiritual maturity. And he gives people gifts to help us all become spiritually mature. Let's see it in this next section, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So Christ himself, he gave us the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So different duties within the body are the work and the appointment of Jesus, not men. So God says, I'm going to give particular grace to someone. I'm going to give them a particular gift. Not everybody has the same gift. Uh, if you ever heard me sing, not the same gift as Brandon, Freddie, and Jerry. Not even close. I do not have that gift of the ability to sing. And that's okay. God doesn't give every gift to every person. He gives particular gifts so that we can be built up as a body of believers. He says apostles. That's a special ambassador of God's word. Now the title is used in two different ways in the New Testament. One is really specific when it talks about like the 12 disciples were apostles, the 12 disciples plus Paul. Uh, and that, so that's a really specific apostolic term for the just those guys. But then the New Testament sort of broadens it out and talks about general uh, people who have been called uh, as special ambassadors. And he also calls some other folks apostles even in the New Testament. And so that word gets used two different ways. Prophets are people who speak forth God's word uh, that will be in complete consistency with the Old and the New Testament. Evangelist, someone who's specifically gifted to preach the good news of Jesus uh, and his salvation to those who've never heard of Jesus. And pastors and teachers. Now, uh, we separate it in English, but in the Greek, it's, a, it's like a one, uh, two jobs, one title. It's like a pastor teacher or a, a shepherd teacher like that. And in Greek, it makes sense. But here, it seems like it's two different like giftings, but it's the same gifting in Greek. So that, that's a person who shepherds the flock of God and teaches them the word of God. These gifts are given at the discretion of Jesus and by the working of the Holy Spirit. Leaders in the church have the responsibility to equip people to serve and to direct their service as God leads because it's supposed to be God's people doing the work of service, not God's pastors. Sometimes we think that it's a little bit different. Not here. Our church has... Over 70% of our people serve uh, in this church, 70 or 80%, which is far uh, greater than, than many churches. So we think this idea is real, and I think that you guys take this idea seriously, that, that the job of the pastors is to equip the people so the people can serve God and come to a mature place in the body. 
when the gifted office officers work right and the saints are properly equipped, three things happen if we look at this passage. So what happens if the pastor does his duty and the people receive that and then they start to exercise their gifts and they start to serve? We see three things. First, we see that the people will be unified. Second, we see Christian maturity increases. And third, the body reaches its full measure in breadth and depth. So it's growing more numerically and it's growing stronger individually. As the years pass by, we shouldn't just only grow old in Jesus, but more mature in Jesus. That's true individually, but it's also true corporately. And I see that here at Jericho Road, even in the years that I've been here. From the place where our church first started to now, there's been an increase of maturity, an increase of uh, what we see those first attributes, humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another. And so we see this maturity coming about even in our church. So we're going to celebrate that 10-year anniversary here at Easter. I think that's going to be fantastic. So we're going to have that Easter service. We're going to have baptisms. We're going to have baby dedication. We're going to have a 10-year anniversary. So I want you to start thinking about who you might want to invite to that. Who, Who would you like to bring to celebrate with us the incredible work that God is doing here? As our church becomes more and more mature. A mature church is a firm church. Here's how Paul says it next. Then we, uh, if those things take place, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by the winds of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. He says as you become mature, then then the little things, the the false teaching, the false ideas, the, the... Uh, maybe cultural pressures, they're going to fall to the wayside. Because as you mature as believers, as you stay strong and unified, there's a strength in that that rejects falseness. He continues, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that's Christ. Speaking the truth in love. This tells us how to relate to both believers and not believers. We should deal with people in love while always speaking the truth. You don't need to lie. You don't need to be shifty or shady. Speak the truth to people, but do it in love. Now, it's essential that we never do one without the other as believers, as we're navigating together and as we're navigating with non-believers. That we never share the truth without love, and we never share love without the truth. Love without the truth is at best empty and indulgent. And it's possibly patronizing and hedonistic if we just love without truth. Truth without love is pharisaic. It's legalistic. And it's incredibly off-putting. If you try to tell someone the truth, I don't know if you've ever tried this. I've messed up before being evangelistic, especially when I was younger. They tell them, you're going to hell if you don't know Jesus and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't doing it out of love. I was trying to get a convert. I was trying to show them that I'm right. The Christianity is true. I had the truth. I didn't have any love. Guess how that worked out? Then people were, oh, thanks for yelling, I'm going to hell. You're right. I need this Jesus. It sounds so good. Nope, never worked out very well. You can't share the truth. Uh, if you can't share the truth in love, then don't. It's probably better to just stay silent. I know you got the truth. But if you can't share that with someone in love, don't do it. 
The same is with your friends, right? If you got a, one of your friends got a booger, and you love them, you're like, bro, booger. If you don't love them, what do you do? Ah, booger, everyone look. Totally different. Either the way the guy found out there was a booger, one's in love, one's not. What's he going to do? First way, oh, thanks, bro. <laughs> I want that booger. Fly down, same thing, right? Hey, in love, brother, I got to tell you, you got the fly down. Ah, fly down. Totally different. One's in love, one's not. The truth is important, but the delivery of the truth in love is equally important. And so as we navigate as a mature, unified body, share the truth 100%, but share it in love. And if you can't do it in love, don't do it. And if you just want to love people and be all good, but not on the basis of Jesus, then don't do it because that will not point them to Christ. That actually points them to hell. If you could just love and we'll be all good. Love's the answer to everything. It's not. Well, the love of Jesus is, but you can't leave out the of Jesus part. Because then you just got hippies smoking weed and living in a combine and, and not showering. That's what happens when you just have love without, without truth, right? It's a mess. Ask everyone who's still in the 70s. I have an uncle who's like, 75 years old, he still thinks he's in 1975. Share the truth in love. Always in love with the goal of helping the body become more mature in Christ. Again, always Christ. And our last verse for today. today. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, it's going to grow and build itself up in love as each part does its work. That's sort of the conclusion that we're going to build together in love, growing stronger together in love. As a church body, we'll grow together in love. And this is exciting for me because y'all are going to get a chance to practice this in a couple of months to see if your pastor has done a good job equipping you or not. The leadership board has approved a two-month sabbatical for me uh, in the month of April and May. And so... I'm going to be kicked off campus, not allowed at church for two months. I'll be only watching online. And uh, so we'll see if, uh, if I've done a good job equipping you or not. Uh, now, I do want to say, asterisk, asterisk, sign, right? Uh, sometimes churches use sabbaticals because there's a problem. Maybe uh, the pastor's burned out or maybe he's, they need to investigate something, something like that. I want to tell you 100% that is not what's going on. <laughs> Uh, there is not a sabbatical because I'm burned out or that I'm frustrated or that I love church. Uh, if they stop paying me, I still come here and do everything I do. I, I absolutely look forward to the best part of my week. It's being with you on Sunday. I love every part of pastoring. There isn't a part of pastoring that I dislike. Uh, I have no burnout. I'm not in conflict with the board. They are not thinking about starting third harvest or anything like that they're not thinking about going the way of the cross or nothing like that there's no <laughs> too soon no it's, it's been seven years no conflict it's not disciplinary uh, it's not because they found out that i've been uh skimming off the funds they haven't found that out yet <laughs> um let's see they're not looking to go in a new direction there is not a negative reason for it, but rather, they think that there's a positive reason. That they think that there's evidence that God, uh, like he says, take a, a one day of the week rest, like he tells the, in the Old Testament, the land to rest once every seven years. 
They think that there's actually a biblical principle that would allow your pastor to take some time off so that that pastor can become even more mature and better at what they're doing for the spiritual health and well-being and love of the pastor. That, that's what they actually think. And that's what it is, not anything else. So I want to be really clear because uh, in the last year or two, several of my pastor friends have been on sabbatical and then they came back to not being on staff. And so that wasn't, that is not the, the case. Uh, they knew it was because something was going on at church or something like that. And I want to assure you, don't worry, there'll be an email from the board verifying this truth uh, coming out later this week. Uh, but it's absolutely uh, a healthy, powerful, spiritual moment that the church has offered me to have and I'm excited to take. So the evidence of maturity is going to be seen when the leaders and the saints are all doing their jobs in love. When every part of the body works together properly in a coordinated effort, it's going to naturally cause the growth and the maturity that the body needs, growth numerically and, and growth, growth spiritually. So I actually anticipate that our church will be stronger after two months because you're going to get the opportunity to flex spiritual muscles that maybe you didn't have the opportunity to flex before. And when I come back and I see you flexing those muscles, I'm not taking those jobs back. If you're doing great, like I, I asked uh, Sarah, she's going to be leading the PPPs for those two months. When, when I come back and she's doing great, guess what? Carry on. Good job, sister. Keep it up. I love you. Bless you. Now, Drew, oh man, Drew, that service ran really smoothly. Well, I think she should continue to carry on and, and make church run smoothly. I think there's an incredible opportunity to see what we see. And I am so confident in our church because, like this verse says, I, I think this is true that the whole body, together, we together, not just me, are held by every ligament getting stronger, by every, every tendon holding on to one another and building itself up in love, I think that's what goes on here. I'm convinced of it as I look around. The things that we do and the programs that we have and the people that are serving, I'm convinced that this is taking place. So I want you to take a moment, and I want you to tell God that you're interested in living a life worthy of the calling that you've received. That's how we started out with this. He said, live a life worthy of the calling. What has God called you? Not vocationally as a human being, as a part of this body, as a, as a believer, God's called you some stuff. And how does he want you to live in a worthy manner? How, how, how might it look if you change maybe something in your interactions with people? Maybe, maybe there's a gentleness that needs to come rather than the harshness that you held on before. Maybe, maybe there's a, uh, a bearing next to one another where you need to come alongside someone. What would it be if you began to live worthy of the calling that you have? Sons and daughters, loved completely and freely, not to gain any merit. And so go ahead and think about that for a second. I'm not talking about your job per se, but in who call God calls you to be. As a mom, as a dad, as a, as a son, as a daughter, as a member of this church. Live a life worthy in the ways that matter to God. Would you pray that truth into your own life and then we're going to close in a worship song.